welcome to the Dad Strength Podcast, helping you take care of yourself so that you can be present for your people. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. My name is Jeff Gervitz. I am your host. I am a fellow dad, and I am kicking off the second season of the Dad Strength Podcast. So I'm glad you're here with me. You're all right. You know that? If you tuned into season one, you are going to notice some format changes here. This project is a labor of love, so I'm continuing to tinker and experiment with it. At the heart of this thing is presence. All of my favorite dads want to be centered and present for the time they spend with their families. And time is limited. Our ability to tune in and be in the moment is limited too. Attention is our most valuable resource, even if we're not used to spending it like it is. So how do we become mindful? We start with getting rid of barriers to mindfulness. And a lot of those are basic self-care, how you sleep, how you eat, how you exercise and manage stress and find meaning. If any one of these things is a tire fire, it makes everything else harder. The good news is that low-hanging fruit can also be delicious. As an introduction or maybe a reintroduction to me, my name is Jeff Gervitz. I am a dad. It would be weird if I weren't. I'm the founder of Bang Personal Training, which is an excellent, if I do say so myself, personal training space in Toronto. We have been rolling since 2008. My expertise is in coaching, in 360-degree health, and in habits. And that last thing means how to create habits, how to break them down like a cardboard box if they're ones that you don't want to have. It is all interesting to me. If you'd like to connect or are curious about coaching, you can hit me at Jeff, G-E-O-F-F at dadstrength.com. I've also got an in-person workshop planned for dads with ADHD. Same email address, G-E-O-F-F at dadstrength.com. Language warning on this one. There's usually a bit of salty language in these. Today, there is an ocean's worth. Uh, That is because my first interview of the season is with author James Fell. James is behind the book On This Day in History, Shit Went Down, and a daily Substack publication called Sweary History. He is smart, he is irreverent, and he is most definitely very sweary. And we connected over a few things, including ADHD, men's rights activists, and finding success over the age of 50. It's a good one, so let's get into it. I was a fitness writer that evolved toward more kind of general motivational self-help um, for a decade. Uh, I was a columnist with the Los Angeles Times and the Chicago Tribune. And, uh, and you know, I did, I did the fitness thing and, and had a book published by Random House in 2014. And it was more, I evolved more toward general science-based motivation, not your, you know, bullshit Tony Robbins stuff. Um, more out of a desire just to reach a broader audience and kind of make it big in book publishing and had a book called the Holy shit moment published in 2019 with a big publishing house, big PR push, all that kind of stuff. And it died. James had been doing well as a fitness writer up until this point. And I don't even think it was that the book truly failed. It just wasn't as successful as he'd hoped it would be. And this got him asking some existential questions, uh, something we all did during the pandemic. I think part of it was he was looking back on his fitness career and realizing that there was a ceiling on there because he wouldn't write about fad diets and hokey exercise programs. He always tried to keep more of a research-driven lens 
on top of what he was talking about. And, you know, therein is the friction. One of the themes that I've learned about in speaking to a lot of people with ADHD is that we are really driven by meaning and a sense of significance in the work we're doing. And if we don't feel it, it is really hard to fake it. I asked James if this captured his experience of the whole thing. I would agree with that. That was something that I really searched for. And um, fitness for me as my choice. So at the um, at the age of 40, I made the decision that I wanted to be a writer. You know, I, I read a lot about fitness and a lot of it was crap. There was a lot of misinformation or it just was boring. It wasn't well written. And I, I knew I had become a good, entertaining writer. And I thought, I could do it better. I could write fitness better than a lot of these other people could and, and make it interesting and engaging and tell cool stories. And, and so I enjoyed it. I was good at it. I liked it. I got to pursue a lot of really interesting stories. I interviewed a ton of like world-famous celebrities and, uh, and built up my reputation and, uh, and exposed a lot of bullshit. And I influenced the way that, uh, that we, the way people wrote about fitness. Cause I started with the LA times in 2010 and I noticed within about two or three years that I'm starting to see more fitness articles that kind of looked like the way I wrote them. So. So we've sort of worked our way backwards here, and that's pretty par for the course with ADHD folks. We love a nonlinear timeline, but for everybody else, right, we've gone back to when James was writing for fitness and things were going well, but... For a writer, I had a very good income, and but it wasn't enough. I wanted, I wanted to make a lot of money and have a really best-selling book, and I evolved. I'd written a lot about the science of motivation, because I felt it was very important that I wasn't, I wasn't um, writing for athletes. I was writing for lay people that wanted to get in shape. And, and so I, was, I knew that motivation was very important. So I was talking about things like behavior change. And then I got the big New York City agent. And, and together, he helped me come up with the idea for the holy shit moment, which was a very science-based analysis of the life-changing epiphany, because I had had one, you know, something that suddenly you have this wonderful mission in life that gives you overwhelming drive to fulfill it. The idea of an epiphany to change your life is, is interesting and compelling, and it, it does work, but it's also the hardest thing to create. I think about uh, BJ Fogg, who designed the Tiny Habits Framework, wrote the book of the same name. He describes three ways to change our behaviors. One of those is to have an epiphany. Another one is to change our environment. But most reliably, this is done through tiny changes. But maybe James is just kind of a dramatic guy. So it was an epiphany for him. Let's get to how this came about. To get there, we are going to have to visit the halls and specifically the cafeteria of the University of Calgary, where you went to school. So I was flunking out of university and uh, dating a wonderful woman that, uh, that was a straight A student and bound for med school. And, uh, and I thought, I, you know, if I flunk out of university, I don't know if she's going to stick around. <laughs> and, so, and, and it became very important to me to be able to stay in university. I'm sitting in the 
the, the food court at university. And I had been kicked out of school. They had said, you're not welcome back because your grades suck. And, uh, and I'm like, what the fuck do I do? And I'm reading the school newspaper and there was this little uh, section called Three Lines Free where people could just make funny jokes and whatever. And in there, somebody had put a quote from folk singer Joan Baez that was, and it was, you know, your typical motivational quote, which most of the time those don't do the square root of fuck all. Uh, but the quote was, action is the antidote to despair. And it happened to hit me at exactly the right time where it made me realize that everything that was wrong, like I didn't understand I had ADHD at the time, but I did realize that the reason why I was flanking out of school was because instead of going to class, I was going to the bar and that, you know, I wasn't studying and I wasn't working hard and that these were problems that could be solved if I took action. So rather than go to the bar, I went to the registrar's office and I booked an appointment for an appeal and I prepared very well for that appeal and went in there and said, I've had this life-changing epiphany. Believe me, I am ready to work very hard. Um, and I convinced them to let me back into school. And, uh, and so they let me back in and uh, I registered again. And through that, I managed to take this one military history course and the, the instructor was just very dynamic and engaging that, okay, well, these are cool stories of like action and adventure that actually happened. And so I started reading, you know, just diving into history books and, and I wasn't a good writer yet, but I learned how to become a good writer. And, and I loved, you know, pulling all these pieces of information together. And I loved writing history papers and impressing the professor James went on to tell me about how much he loved thriving in an academic environment and how the study of history brought him back to what he loved as a kid, which was reading sci-fi and fantasy novels. In fact, he even took a crack at the genre, but found out maybe it wasn't going to be for him. As a matter of fact, this conversation went in a lot of different directions, but that's par for the course. I consider it a feature, not a bug. I don't remember what we were talking about. but. <laughs> I think I maybe got sidetracked there, ADHD thing. But uh, the practicality aspect of it, where we talked about, you know, how I practically decided to do fitness. And um, that was uh, born out of, I think, being bullied when I was younger. You know, I was, I was not an athlete. Um, I, I was not a good student. And I didn't have a lot of friends. I preferred to watch TV and read books. And, uh, and so it created, I don't know if I would call it an inferiority complex. Um, it created a desire to prove other people wrong. And, you know, I think part of that was also reflected in my fitness, that I wanted to have a good physique. I wanted to be stronger and faster than other people. You know, it motivated me to qualify for the Boston Marathon type of thing. Um, you know, always wanting to prove that I wasn't this loser that the people in junior high told me that I was. And, uh, and so that, that is part of the motivation that 
And I'm not saying that this isn't toxic because it is, but at least I've come to terms with understanding it. And now, you know, with the switch to history, which I agreed was very risky, I had no idea if it was going to work out. But then when it did, and I started making a lot of money, which was my goal from the beginning, um, you know, I, I don't think the goal to make a lot of money was to say, was to show off saying, because I haven't gone out and bought a new car. <laughs> I'm still driving a 10-year-old Honda Civic. <laughs> so, um, it was actually because I like money. <laughs> like, actually, I wanted to, to have a lot of money for, you know, reasons of security is one. Um, but also, you know, being able to, to not have to, to penny pinch and things like that. But yeah, there, there, was, uh, there was also the desire to be recognized as a success. This is pretty relatable. I think we can all think of examples from our childhoods where someone told us that we were going to be failures, we weren't going to make it, where they were just kind of terrible to us, you know, teachers or bullies. And so proving them wrong makes a lot of sense and I think carries a lot of motivational juice. But, you know, we can also bear in mind that the person we're proving wrong only lives in your head they're like 30 or 40 years older now they're off living their life. They might be a different person. They might actually be enjoyable by this point. But, you know, it gets me thinking that if there is something toxic about it, it is when we craft behaviors and maybe even our environment as a response to this. And it digs us into an older identity that maybe doesn't need to exist anymore. But to be fair, James's Behaviors aren't uh, maladaptive. He takes care of himself. He takes care of his family. He's been financially successful. So maybe, you know, ultimately the way we judge this is um, whether, whether we're living a good life or whether these old identities have us kind of pinned down. So I think he's doing just fine. But um, as a matter of fact, one of the things that I think is so interesting is when in life, uh, these positive changes happen for him when he really hits success because we kind of tell a tale in our culture. Like if you've hit 35 and you haven't made it, it's game over, man. But is that true? This was just two years ago. I was 52. Um, so I, well, I, I did the switch to history in April of 2020. So I was 51. And, uh, all I did for the first five months was just write these daily history posts on this day in history, shit went down, uh, and posted it to Facebook. And suddenly my Facebook page became way more popular. It took nine years to build it to 80,000 followers. Um, and that was all done organically. And then uh, a year later, it was almost double that. So it was suddenly people were realizing that, that this was something that they wanted to read. I mean, the fact that I was posting something new every single day, I think, helped. And I stopped, you know, posting memes and bullshit. And my page, the majority of what was on my page was just the history post every day. 
And the timing was good, too, because it was the spring of 2020. And a lot of people were freaked out because COVID was beginning and it was looking like Trump was going to be reelected. And and people were doom scrolling like mad. And and I gave them a three minute break from that. And, And people were commenting that, like, this is my my favorite thing to find on Facebook each day because it it distracts me from the hellscape that we're currently living through. And so then it was after five months, all I did was just build up the following. And then I launched um, a Patreon. And uh, apparently only 3% of Patreons make more than a thousand a month. I hit that in a few hours. Patreon, if you don't know, is a subscription service that lets creators run sort of a one-person publishing house. So folks that follow can... Uh, pay whatever they set up as a subscription, right? So it's a nice way for creatives to do their thing without a whole company behind them. Same deal with Substack, which I'm on, but you know, we'll get to that in a minute. And, uh, and so it was, and the thing was that I wasn't even putting the column on Patreon. I was keeping it free on Facebook. I said, don't worry, the column's going to stay free on Facebook forever. And, uh, but there's other stuff on Patreon for subscribers. And within three months, I was one of the top earning writers on Patreon. I was in the top 30 within three months. So Substack came and, uh, and made me a hell of an offer to switch. So they, they saw me rocketing up the Patreon rankings and, and got in touch and offered me a deal to switch. And I'm like, and it was a good deal. <laughs> so I said, okay. So I mean, the switch was a pain in the ass. It was, I basically had to start over with the subscriber base. Um, but I did that. The book came out on the one year anniversary of its start and has sold like mad. I self-published it, uh, which if you have your own built-in following and you don't need a publisher, there's way more money in self-publishing. Most self-published books don't sell for shit. But at this point, you know, when the book came out, I had like 150,000 Facebook followers and a dedicated following that everybody, even though they read the entire column for free, they wanted the book. And, uh, and so the book came out just over a year ago, it sold over 25,000 copies and still selling at least a thousand copies a month, sometimes 2000, if I'm pushing it, uh, and volume two comes out in September. Um, speaking of which you can't see it, but James is holding up a copy of the book for me, probably for you too. Yeah. Buy it. Why don't you? Uh, I think it will be pretty enjoyable. He has a very lively writing style that I think harnesses his ADHD. So he'll sort of drop a thought and then give you the thought on that thought. It it, it zings around. And one of the other things his his writing does is drop the veil of this would-be sort of impartiality. I think a lot of more academic authors have to have. He wears his politics on his sleeve now, which we'll get to in a second. And he'll let you know who he thinks have been shitty characters throughout history. And among that cast and crew and something that's uh, caused quite a bit of personal friction for him, uh, we get to men's rights activists and incels. Sometime in May, May 12th, maybe. Um, the Elliot Roger massacre in Isla Vista, California, 2014. He was an incel uh, 
striving to be an alpha male that went on a murder spree because he couldn't get laid, literally. And he wrote a 100,000-word manifesto of hate-filled bullshit. And one of the things that he talked about over and over was the whole concept of, you know, wanting to be an alpha male, wanting, you know, bang all the hot chicks. And at that time, um, the concept of the alpha male in fitness was still pushed a lot. And I'd never said anything about it, but I didn't like it. I thought it was toxic masculine, you know, toxic masculinity bullshit. And, uh, and because I'd been, you know, writing for the LA Times for four years at this point and trying to, you know, just be, I, I'm going to say play both sides, but just not tell people what I really thought about stuff. Uh, other than, other than, you know, science. Like I, I, I was very opinionated onto whether or not something would help you build muscle or lose weight, but I didn't get into the socio-political stuff. But I, privately, I really disliked all the toxic bro culture in fitness. And I hated this whole concept of being an alpha male. I thought it was bullshit. And I just, I hated the language around it and the messaging and, and all that. And when this happened, it triggered a thought in me that um, that said, I got to write about this because a whole bunch of people just died. And, and so I wrote a blog post called The Myth of the Alpha Male. And, uh, and that blew up. And uh, all of a sudden, I got an email from the editor at Time Magazine saying, we would like you to write some stuff for us about this. And, and so I wrote about men's rights activists uh, who are douchebags and uh, and it was published on time and it was that story blew up. And, it, you know, they mentioned my Time magazine article on CNN television. And it was uh, one of the nice things about the alpha male article that surprised the hell out of me was how many young male trainers, buff guys that you would think would buy into that crap loved the article shared it said it was great yes i think exactly the same thing um so that really gave it told me that there are a lot of guys that you would look at them that you would think these guys are in their 20s and they're jacked and ripped and you would think they would buy into this alpha male bullshit and they didn't so that was very refreshing and very encouraging and it started me down a path to saying Okay, I have a voice that people listen to beyond um, the uh, you know just the science of fitness and, and weight loss, and I started sharing a lot of opinions, and I made a lot of enemies, um, but I also uh, I think I changed quite a few minds along the way, and then when it came to writing about history, um, I was like, well, I'm, you know, very liberally opinionated. That's not going to stop. <laughs> so I, uh, you know, it's not just profanity filled history. It's from a very liberal point of view. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of stories of badass women and, you know, history of civil rights and it's, it's unwhitewashed. Uh, it, it talks about, you know, all the various evils of misogyny and slavery and things like that. And, you know, the stuff that the Texas school board doesn't want you to read about <laughs> and, and that kind of stuff. But yes, it was the Isla Vista massacre in 2014 
that was the impetus for me to start telling people what I thought. I think it's courageous of James to do this because I think we all sort of, you know, we want, especially if we have a business, um, if our livelihoods of our families depend on something, you know, we want it to do well and we don't want to exclude uh, potential customers. But you get to a point, I think, and I certainly did, where I said, well, actually, I don't want these people around. I don't want their money. Um, what the rest of the community gets from not having them there, and I'm, I'm talking about, for me, anyone with hate as a philosophy, <laughs> which is not much of a philosophy, um, to say no. So it's sort of um, encouraging to hear that you can do this and not only do it, um, but connect even more deeply with your audience. Yeah, I mean, the following year was when Trump started running for leadership of the GOP. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I don't care if I lose followers because they like Trump. Because honestly, if you like Trump, you're not my people. <laughs> you're not. You're not somebody that I that I'm writing for. And uh, and so I I was vocally against him very early on. And uh, and to this day, I mean, the book and both Volume One and Volume Two make many jokes at his expense. Tangerine Palpatine and Apricot Antichrist and. Eric's dad. So you know where James' politics live. And at this point, I ask him about his experience with the manosphere. So those are the uh, the men's rights activists and, uh, and the blowback that he's experienced from it. There have always been uh, these types of men that, uh, that they cannot handle the fact that they're not the winners of society that, uh, and I mean, it, it's unfair that society is so hierarchical, but then there's the other guys that are, um, who don't have a lot of those things and they're looking for someone to blame. And it sucks that we live in a society that values these things and will look down on people that don't have them and don't achieve them. But rather than try and do something to, find some type of happiness and success where it's good for them. And they feel like I am happy being this person. And, you know, if you don't, if that's not good enough for you, well, I don't give a shit about your opinion. They instead um, get embroiled in that toxicity and they look for someone to blame and they lash out in a hateful manner. They have been programmed to think that, you know, life owes them a porn star. And when they don't get it, um, obviously it's the fault of women and, uh, and any man who is pro-feminism is is one of the enemy. So it, it's it's sad that they could actually they they are capable of being happy if they rejected that bullshit. Um, but instead they they double down and become angry and uh, and some of them become radicalized to the point of terrorism. Canada has named um, incels a terrorist group. Uh, and, and yes, they have committed, many of them have committed many murders. And, and so it is a, a dangerous radicalization process that, uh, men's rights is actually a gateway to white supremacy. 
it's a much more serious problem than a lot of people realize that, you know, the, the biggest threat to democracy in the United States and Canada, as far as I know, is white supremacy. And, uh, and that a lot of it starts with the whole hating women aspect of things. I'm not saying that everyone has to publicly choose a side because for me, like it is, there have been consequences. Uh, this has not been easy. Um, you may notice in my public persona that I don't share much about my family except to praise, you know, the autocomplice. So, yes, I have a wife who is a physician who is amazing, brilliant, and I love her. Yes, I have very successful kids. You know, my, my daughter won this karate championship. My son graduated from electrical engineering with a 3.9. But I don't even, I don't share pictures about them. And I don't, you know, tell you what their names are and, and stuff like that. And I don't talk about their private lives or anything like that. Um, because I think it's important to protect them. I put myself out there. I take a lot of heat. I have a lot of enemies and I don't want that to spill over to other people. There's a famous quote that I use often by um, science fiction author, Robert Heinlein, which is, you can sway a thousand men by appealing to their prejudices faster than you can convince one man by logic. And that is one true fucking statement. I talked about how that whole epiphany quote, action is the antidote to despair. That ruled my life for many years um, because whenever I didn't realize that I had been suffering from anxiety my entire life and that it was triggered by the ADHD. And once I had that life-changing epiphany and that quote, that I held on to that quote like a life preserver, that anytime anything went wrong in my life, I used it to solve problems, that if there was some type of issue, then action was the antidote to despair, identify the problem, analyze the problem, fix the problem, and the anxiety becomes manageable. And, and I was good at it, but it was really, it was a band-aid solution um, because I was just, you know, I was using my ability to fix problems to um, to solve often what was a neurochemical anxiety, and uh, and it was keeping it at bay, but it wasn't 
um, there was still always lots of, you know, anxiety permeating through my body. And then 2020, a year that I refer to as a fucktacular shitnado of ass, um, threw that all out the window because uh, three things. First of all, careers in the toilet. Um, and I started writing about uh, history, but I had no idea if it was going to work out. <clears throat> My income was non-existent. Fast forward a year and a half and Trump is out. My career is taking off. I'm making tons of money and I'm triply vaccinated. Everything should be great, right? But it's not. I'm still uh, have all of this anxiety. Like I couldn't do the action as the antidote to despair because most of those things were outside of my control. I just had to accept them. And, and I was so anxious for a long time about the election and about COVID. But then Trump lost and I got, I got vaccinated and my career was going great. But it was almost like I was making all of this money and the career was going really well that I felt that I had to obsess even more. I was spending so much time on social media and pushing to sell. I'm selling a lot of books, but I need to sell more. And I'm selling a lot of Substack subscriptions, but I need to sell more. And I couldn't pull myself away. And I wasn't getting back to the fitness level that I wanted to be because I needed to be in front of my computer. And, uh, and that was the hyperfixation had just gone into overdrive. And so when I take Ritalin, I don't take it to write. I don't take it to work. I don't need it for that. I take it to stop working. This was an interesting plot twist. The calls were coming from inside the house, right? And in this case, James needed to take medication in order to answer the phone. So while this is by no means pharmaceutical advice, definitely talk with, uh, with a professional about this. It is just a reminder that if the meds aren't working, it may be more a question of timing or task. So it is what allows me to step away from that. Um, you know, I'm at my computer at seven o'clock in the morning. I write like mad until one o'clock at noon. I will take an eight hour Ritalin and by one it's kicking in and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm done for the day and I can go do other stuff. I can exercise and I can go grocery shopping and make meals and do housework and watch TV without having to look at my computer, my phone at the same time. And it just, it allows me to live a, a more balanced life that gets rid of the whole fear of missing out and constantly having to, to manage every little aspect of my, my writing career. One of the principles I use and I coach is to get rid of the bottom 10% of whatever you're doing. So there's this sort of idea floating around that the first thing we need to do when we want to improve on our health is to restrict ourselves in whatever we find the most pleasurable. Let's leave that alone. Let's acknowledge that something that is really enjoyable has value. But is there something that exists in your life that is neither enjoyable nor productive, where it just sort of eats away at quality of life and maybe time or some other finite resource? If we can get rid of that, we feel better, we feel more energetic, we get better results. And it is basically effortless. It's even better than that. We actually feel unburdened by getting rid of this stuff. A lot of the physical symptoms um, are 
really, I don't want to say gone, but much better managed. Now, I was getting pounding heart, tight chest, difficulty breathing, uh, tingling skin, uh, you know, waking up each morning. So I, you know, I took a Ritalin that, that wears off at, you know, about nine o'clock at night. Um, and, uh, but, you know, before I was on Ritalin, each morning I would wake up first thing in the morning and I would have a, a pounding heart, not fast, heart, thump, thump, thump. And, um, you know, now uh, my Ritalin has worn off 10 hours ago, but that's, I don't have it. I wake up in the morning, it's not there. It's been eight months now, I think, seven months maybe. And it's been uh, life-changing maybe and overstanding. It's definitely been very helpful uh, because, you know, before 2020, I was able to manage uh, because I didn't, I didn't realize it and, uh, and the stress wasn't too bad. But once, once the world kind of started going to shit, I just, I couldn't deal with it. And I put up with it for a year and a half. And then, um, you know, the world is still fucked, <laughs> but, uh, but at least I can, you know, not make it think that it's all on my shoulders and all my responsibility and I can just, you know, try and, and live my life and be as happy as I can in the, in the fucktacular shitnado of ass that still exists. The way that James works and the style of writing that he has is fueled by ADHD. So the goal here is not to get rid of it or fix anything. There's nothing to be fixed. Um, it's rather to look at the entire system and, and ask, you know, what kind of tweaks would really improve quality of life? And I love how he's done that. So some final thoughts on writing from James. I think there's a lot of people that read my work because they like that it's all over the map. That, you know, when I was writing for the LA Times, I would uh, write these opening paragraphs that were so, what the fuck like the that the, the the editor loved them because it got people to keep reading that i wrote such a what the fuck opening paragraph that they had to read the whole thing to figure out where i was going and that was an adhd thing that uh, was like well i know where it's going try and keep up <laughs> and, and so it was I, I like to keep doing that's a style that I've developed that I'm sure my like when I came when I wrote that piece about ADHD there were so many people said well yeah we know uh, <laughs> like we can tell we've been reading your shit for years and and so I didn't want to stop that I didn't want to pull that out uh, of my writing it is a good lesson in working to your strengths and building systems for everything else you know, after our interview was done, I realized that I'd left one really important question on the table. So I reached out to James again, and I asked him what motivation tools he used to get an entire book done. And he told me that he committed publicly. It was something he knew he could do. But when he put it out there and said, hey, I'm going to write this every day for the next two years, I'm going to write a book... He knew that people were watching. He knew that he would be motivated by that. So it's not to say that this type of motivation will always work or will work for you, but it is a tool you can put in your toolkit. And uh, there is something compelling about putting it all 
in public. Big thanks to my guest, James Fell. You can check out his work, all his sweary history, at jamesfell.com. You can always subscribe to the podcast or follow us on social media. Reminder that I will be hosting an in-person workshop for dads with ADHD, how to leverage our strengths and build systems for everything else. If you have ADHD, I would love to tell you about it, learn about you. You can drop me a line at jeff, G-E-O-F-F, at dadstrength.com. Thanks a lot for hanging out with us today. The Dad Strength Podcast is an Unlearning Network production. Title music by Daniel Ross. Additional music by Mike Ford. Mike Ford.